everyone. Uh, my name is Robert Sepulveda, and I'm a uh, licensed mental health counselor um, here at Hinman Counseling Services. Um, yeah. And I'm Dr. Brad Hinman. I am also here at Hinman Counseling Services. Uh, I am a licensed professional counselor, a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I'm a certified sex therapist. Great. And uh, <clears throat> so today we're going to talk about sex and religion. Very uh, controversial and big topic for a lot of people, you know, and, uh, <clears throat> you know, and, and for me, you know, I've, I've growing up in a uh, religious home, um, actually Seventh Day Adventist. Um, we, uh, I'll be honest, I never was talked about sex. No one ever said, hey, this is what happens or this is what you do. Um, and if I ever asked about it or brought something up, it was, uh, it was shut down real quick. Nobody wants to hear about it. Um, you know, I always got the look. If there was a movie on and a sex scene came on, it was, you know, hands were over my eyes or parents would like fast forward, you know? And I was always, I always wondered why, you know, what's, what's wrong with that? What's that about? Um, but yeah, I, I grew up in the church. <clears throat> I was, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the kid that was, uh, what can I say, forced, you know, to, to sing songs up front in the pulpit, uh, to memorize Bible verses and recite them, um, you know, made to sing in the choir. And uh, that's, that's all I knew for a, for a long time. Um, <clears throat> and it wasn't till maybe till grade school till I started to learn more about this, not even from my own family about what sex was. So, uh, Brad, what was your experience growing up? I had a very similar experience to yours. Um, I did not grow up Seventh-day Adventist, but my experiences around sex growing up were very similar to yours. Um, sex was not discussed in my home at all. Um, I have five brothers and one sister, but my sister left home when I was like six because she's the second oldest. And so it was all men, basically, and my mom. Um, I remember... Um, you know, a, a girl would get pregnant and my mom would not use the word pregnant because that meant they had sex. Um, and so it's very similar to what you said. Like if, if we had questions growing up, those were shut down very quickly. Um, so I, we, I quickly learned in my family that my parents were not safe to ask questions about mm. sex to. Um, so what I learned about sex was from school, from my friends, right? And so... Um, it was a very taboo topic. I grew up in a very small town. Um, everybody knew everybody. And so you had to be careful even like what you disclosed to people because it would just go throughout the whole town, right? So um, it was a very, very not open sexual environment at all. Wow. And I, um, <clears throat> I, I hear you on that, that part about school, you know, because I, I didn't get that, you know, education about sex at home it was all at school and and i'll be honest it wasn't exactly the the greatest place to learn because right. i i mean i learned it from you know my, my peers and and as early as second third grade you know um and I, I just remember too thinking back like people would you know in the playground you know kids would play these silly games of like oh uh, and ask you questions like oh are you are you a virgin you know are, are you a virgin oh and then like if you said yes 
you know, then it was like, ew, you know, oh, you had sex. But but then if you said no, you were lame. Yeah. <laughs> you were made fun of. and it, But it's like, I don't even know what that means, you know? And, and just kind of being the odd one out. But, you know, as an adult, it's okay. Everybody was lying, you know, right. and just playing around back then. Um, and, 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 you know, things like that. You know, kids would make silly jokes. And, like, I, I remember once, too, uh, <clears throat> I, my whole life. Well, not my whole life, but I thought a condom was was a, like a vitamin, like a pill that that you put inside your your penis, right? And oh, wow. that was, you know, again, totally ignorant. But again, at like you know second and third grade, kids, you know, my age are talking about these things, and and that you know that sparks that curiosity, and you want to learn more. But then if I go ask, you know, I I can I can get in trouble if I ask at home. Or even a teacher would be like, "Oh, don't don't talk about that stuff." But but yeah, I mean, how how was it for you? Um, similar, right? Like it's you know, very restrictive environment. Um, I remember being too embarrassed to ask. Certainly, my brothers, because I have five older brothers, um, and so you know they'd be going out on a date, um, but they would you know they would take a shower before their date, and I'm like. I don't understand. Like you already took a shower. Why are you taking another shower? Um, and so just as a child, like not knowing the physical part of like dating and love relationships, right? The sexual part. Um, and you know, I already said like I, you, I couldn't ask my parents any questions and I felt too embarrassed to ask my brothers questions because they already knew what they were doing. Right. But, um, and so I didn't want to be ridiculed for that. And so there really wasn't anybody to ask questions to. I just had to go through life, like picking up little tidbits here and there, uh, you know, from people's conversations um, and learning, oh, well, this is what that means. This is, you know, this is what happens. Um, and so, yeah, it was, I just remember that, that it was almost like putting a puzzle together, right? Like just gathering pieces of information here and there. Um, going through life. So, so Brad, what are what are some myths that you've heard about like sex, you know, and and I guess religion too, and how how those two maybe intertwine? Yeah, probably the biggest sex myth that I that I hear now in my practice is like men think that they're or teenagers teenage boys will think that they're sinning mm-hmm. if they have a wet dream. Um, and so because they think, well, I'm being sexual while I'm sleeping. And so obviously if I'm not married, then that's a sin. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I have to talk to them about, you know, production of sperm and the release of that sperm is a natural biological process, just like urinating. Right. So, Mm -hmm. um, that it's not, you're not sinning, you're not, um, dreaming about being sexual necessarily although that's fine too but um so that's a myth um i remember hearing growing up um that if women used a public bathroom and they sat on the toilet seat that they could get pregnant from that um so that's another myth Um, yeah so there's a lot of another myth that that i heard growing up as a kid um kind of a weird opposite kind of a myth is that girls don't get pregnant the first time they have sex like that it's impossible to get pregnant the first time yeah (laughs) 
So that's a dangerous myth. Yeah. <laughs> because they can. <laughs> so what about you? Did you, have you heard myths? Um, you know, I growing up in the church too. I, I think I remember in uh, in Pathfinders, it right. It's like a it's like Boy Scouts for Seventh Day Adventists, right? Um, I remember being told that uh, you know if if you play with your penis or if you if you masturbate, you're gonna go bald. You know, you're gonna lose all your hair. And um, if there were kids with like bald spots, you think, oh, you know, you'd kind of whisper like, oh, they're, yeah. they're, they're, they're jerking off all the time or they're always masturbating or, you know, and, and like, it, you know, it's, it's sad, but, but also I think it, it, it also kept some, some boys from masturbating. Mm-hmm. I think it scared them into it. Um, some other things that I, I've experienced too in, in practice is, um, uh, you know, again, I, I remember having like a teen just saying that. You know, they feel so guilty because they masturbated and they're, um, you know, they're already cheating on their future wife, you know, and and they feel guilty to the point where, you know, they they feel like they have to be baptized like again, you know, or several times or or continuously like just overwhelmed with with guilt and shame because like, oh, you know, they they masturbated this day and and, you know, they got to spend the whole day praying and asking for forgiveness. Um yeah, that's some, you know, some sad things that I've heard, you know, about that. Um, and I'm sure there's other other myths. Um, I guess another one that I could think of is like, you know, oh, you don't you don't got to worry about how sex is going to be after marriage. Um, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be just right because God, you know, chose you and, and you two were married together. So sex is going to be perfect from from, you know, moving on from here on out. Um you know, if you marry the right person, the sex is going to be good, uh, no matter what. But, you know, a lot of times at found in practice, too, that it's not necessarily true. You know, a lot of people are disappointed because they start to, to learn about each other and realize that they, they may not have the same, like, desire or, um, you know, motivation or, or whatever it is to want to have sex as many times as the other person. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, you're bringing up a good point because some things that I've that I've heard too in session is, you know, they, especially in Christian families, sex is viewed as wrong and it's taboo, right? Don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And then the day you get married, all that is supposed to evaporate. And now you're supposed to have this wonderful, glorious sex and you're supposed to know everything about sex and you're supposed to know how to please your partner. (laughs) And all of that is just supposed to be like delivered to you from an angel or something because it wasn't talked about at home right so so nobody has ever taught how to have good sex at home nobody's ever taught how to ask for sex or turn down sex but all that is just supposed to miraculously show up on your wedding night Um, and so that can lead to problems because those taboos don't evaporate overnight and so sometimes we'll get newly married clients or newly partnered clients in this practice and they don't, they literally don't know how to have sex, right? They don't know how to negotiate for sex. They don't know how to ask for sex because they've never been trained how to do that. And they weren't able to ask questions growing up. And so it can lead to a lot of hangups, even in relationships where it's legal to have sex now. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've spent, the, you know, 90% of their life thus far with sex being forbidden and taboo. And so, you know, there's, and that leads, leads me to another thought of like a lot of times single guys, they'll be looking at porn 
when they're when they're single and they'll say well when i get married i'm going to stop looking mm -hmm. at porn mm -hmm. and they've trained their brain to continually look at porn and that doesn't evaporate on your wedding night either right um and so they may want to have sex with their wife and they may desire their wife but they've trained their brain that this is the way that i, I get sexual gratification is through pornography and it's not like a light switch your brain just can't shut that off overnight and so like i'll a lot of times say to clients you're practicing doing it wrong An another I, I guess another myth to add to that you know I've, I've actually had a client tell me too uh that you know they they can't masturbate if, because they're married and if they do they're cheating on their oh, yes. on their husband you know or or their wife um and that's also a sin you know um, and, and it's just, I don't know, I guess it, it's kind of sad because it's like, no matter what you do, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're sinning, you know, if the other person maybe doesn't feel like having sex or isn't, you know, re it really is tired and not in the mood, you know, it, it's, it's a sin if you decide to, to masturbate. Um, yeah, just, uh, growing up or in the church, masturbation is considered, uh, shameful, um, and, and wrong and, um. Yeah, a, a lot of people really do believe that they are going to go to hell if, if they masturbate um, to the point where, you know, some people, some clients I've worked with have even, you know, considered suicide or thought about it because, you know, that what's the point? Like if I can't have sex and if I can't, you know, masturbate, but I can't like I can't help it. Right. I can't stop myself or or maybe there's, you know, some sort of like, I guess, uh, pornography addiction. Um, they feel like, what's the point, you know, I'm, I'm even working on this or I've been trying to, to change, but I can't, um, you know, then there's no other, they feel like there's no other choice that, you know, what's the point of, of being alive if, if they can't even do that. Mm -hmm. So talking about the, the shame and guilt and stuff, I get a lot of clients that, that have a lot of shame and guilt around mm -hmm. if, if they're trying to recover, like if they're trying to give up um, masturbation and porn or they're trying to give up like hooking up with random sexual strangers they if, and if they mess up and they choose to use they they think they're starting over mm -hmm. right there's that huge sense of hopelessness and shame and guilt from that that if they if they if they're moving forward in a trajectory trajectory towards health then they think if they make one mistake that that's going they're they're back at zero now and i'm like no you can't unlearn what you've learned you still know that you just chose not to use it one day right which is not the end of the world so you just have to choose to continue to use the new knowledge that you have about recovery and so that that has that's resulted in a lot of shame and guilt in my clients is this idea of i have to be perfect even in my recovery mm -hmm. i have to be perfect like the, the second that I walk through the door of the counseling practice is the last time that I will ever use. And it's the last time I'm ever going to think about using. And it's the last time that I'm ever going to feel shame and guilt. Right. And so and then when you and then when they use, they mess up, they choose to use, then that creates it all comes flooding back. Um, and I've had clients talk about suicide in that regard as well. Right. That I'm never going to get better. God can't even forgive me. I'm mm. so bad, right? Like, I, I'm so horrible that God can't do anything with me. 
And that's a really hopeless situation, a really hopeless position to be in uh, because they, they, they can be taught the tools. They can, like our brains are super malleable um, and our brains adjust quickly to new information and new situations. And so we can, you, you know, you learned how to be sexual, you can learn to con control that sexual sexuality and you can learn to make better choices according to your own code of, of activity in, within relationships or even outside of relationships. So, so Brad, can you, I guess, can you tell me what is the difference between shame and guilt? Mm, it's a good question. Um, in my opinion, I, I don't know, people might disagree. To me, guilt is feeling bad for a choice that you've made or an activity that you've done, right? So if I um, am talking with my hands and I accidentally mm -hmm. smack you, um, I should probably feel guilty for that, right? Because I didn't mean to hit you. Um, so, so guilt can be good, in my opinion, sometimes. But in many people, guilt transitions immediately into shame. We feel guilt first. And then in a matter of seconds, we, we transfer that to guilt or shame. Um, shame, in my opinion, means that I am a horrible person. Guilt means I did something bad, according to my own moral code. But shame means I am bad, right? I am permanently a bad person. Um, so words like I'm stupid, um, I'm awful, God can't forgive me. Those are all shame-based statements. Those are not guilt-based shame statements, right? So if if I am married, which I am, and I have sex outside of my marriage, which my wife would not be very happy about, then I should feel guilty about that. But does that necessarily mean that I should be, that I should feel shame, right? Shame, in my opinion, is not productive. Um, shame is never beneficial, in my opinion, because if I am an awful person, if I am so stupid that I can't make smart choices, then that means I can't change, right? There's no hope for change. What What is counseling going to do then? Because it's not going to change me into not being a horrible, awful person. And so, yeah, so guilt can be productive if we use it to move forward. Shame can never be productive because we're always looking back, right? Like, I am a horrible person. I've been horrible since birth, wow. right? Um, and so there's no, there's no ability to change. There's no hope with, with shame. So so how, how, I guess how do you help a client or, or how do you help someone, I guess, get over that shame or not, you know, not feel that, that guilt or shame anymore? Um, that's an excellent question. Um, I talk to my clients about this all the time. And in my opinion, the first step is to just notice shame-based statements, right? I tell them, catch yourself making these statements. And so, and, and I'll give them examples because they will have invariably used shame-based statements in session with me. And so I'll say like this, like the statement that you used where you said, um, you know, God can't forgive me. That's a shame-based statement. So just notice when you make those statements. You don't have to do anything about it. Just make note of it, right? And so, and I'll tell them, you know, write it down in your phone, um, you know, the, the statement. Uh, after they practice noticing for a week or two, then I'll have them start to gently argue with that statement, right? Okay. 
Um, and I always use the example, like if I'm coming to the practice and I go to unlock the door and I drop my keys, my first instinct is to say, you're so stupid because I dropped my keys. And so then when we get to the gently arguing stage, I would say, am I really stupid? Mm. Right. And so just question. You're not yelling and screaming. You're not saying you're so stupid for thinking you're so stupid. Yeah. Right. Like, cause that's another shame based statement. So I just ask myself, am I really stupid or did I just, or do I just have too many things in my hands? Right. Okay. Or do I need to put something down? Right. So, so you're just starting to gently argue with yourself and that's how you start moving away from these shame-based statements, noticing and then mm. arguing. And then maybe replacing that with another statement, like what I said is, am I really stupid or do I just have too much in my hands or am I too busy or am I, am I just not paying attention to what's, what I'm doing, yeah. right? Do I need to pay more attention? So none of those are shame-based statements, right? So you're, you're kind of replacing those statements with another narrative. Oh, I, I like that. It kind of uh, it reminds me of, of something I've I've spoken to clients about too about um, you know putting putting your negative thoughts on trial like mm -hmm. like hey what's what's the evidence for you yes. know hey um, like your example of dropping the keys right what's the evidence of like oh you're dumb no that that's not true you know you just hey you you drop the keys people drop stuff all the time right you just pick it back up and and you're good right. Um, you know, and then kind of asking yourself too, is this like, okay, is this a fact or is it like a feeling, um, you know, like this thought that you're having? Um, and also being able to say, hey, I've, I've been able to make changes in my life before, right? And, and I can do it again with this particular situation. Um, and that's, that's a good point because I'll have clients write down in their phones, mm -hmm. like successes that they've done throughout the day. Um, and, uh, and, you know, I tell them it doesn't have to be like I built a rocket ship in my garage and flew to Mars. Like, like it could be I made my bet this yeah. morning. Right. Write it down. Like if that makes you feel good, like you've accomplished something, then write it down. Um, and and then when you're having when you feel shame, when you feel worthless, then go back and read that 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 list of things that you accomplished that you wrote down and that it'll make you feel better. Right. You'll be like, oh, well, if I did those things, then I can do this. Right. I can accomplish this thing. It's, it's motivating um, and it's not shame inducing. So I'll have them come up with a list of why you're awesome <laughs> in your phone. <laughs> so uh, another myth, too, that that I've heard around is that. Uh, Sex is only for procreation. That's all it's for. You, you're not supposed to enjoy it. Um, you know, you, you just have to sit there and only yeah. only be in the missionary position. And if you do anything outside of that, you know, it's it's wrong. It's it's like a, a, a sin. Um, so what do you think about that? Um, I have heard that, too, as well, um, that sex is for procreation. And if you sit down with a calculator and you do the math, <laughs> um, it actually comes out to like two one hundredths of 1% of sex is for procreation. Wow. Um, and so this is, you know, typically like, and I was using, in, in, I was using having sex two times a week, which is actually somewhat low for some people. Um, and if you, and I think I use 30 years, so having sex twice a week for 30 years. Um, 
is it comes out to be like 0. 0.0002 <laughs> percent um, and that is if you have two children of course some people have more than two children some people don't have any children um, and so like I think that sex for procreation we really don't want to go down that mm -hmm. road because otherwise we would have like 300 billion people on this planet <laughs> um, if every time somebody had sex they they had a baby and i don't think really the human body can withstand that anyway um that if you had two babies a week for 30 years <laughs> um, and so yeah um, you know sex is designed for pleasure it's designed to feel good um, dolphins also have sex for pleasure, by the way. Um, <laughs> so there, there are some some different species that that have sex for pleasure and not just procreation. Um, and we are fortunately one of those species that can have sex for enjoyment rather than just procreation. Yeah, I think uh, I think that's that's awesome too. And and something I think that is often forgotten is is that in the bible right god said be fruitful and multiply yeah. you know um yeah so i i think you know that's god also like instructing you to like to love your your partner you know to um to make love throughout your marriage you know um and it's okay like outside of conception to to have sex and enjoy and, and love each other um well, and sex really is, especially in this culture today, mm. like sex is really a part of relationships for most people. Some people it's not part of their relationship. But for most people, sex is a part of showing your partner that you love them and that mm. you care about them. Because in this society, we tend to stop touching boys at around age 10 or 11 mm -hmm. we stop hugging them we stop wrestling with them we stop touching them um, caressing their hair or whatever um, which is also coincidentally around the time that they hit puberty wow. and so when boys around the time when boys hit puberty we stop showing them love and affection physically so that means the only love and affection that they get is through sex or masturbation and so we have just kind of moved as a society like all of a sudden when a boy hits double digits like 10 um, we stop showing them love and affection and so then men tend to if you're not having sex with me then you don't love me right they equate physical touch sexual physical touch with love and if their partner chooses not to have sex with them then it's an automatic thought in their head that obviously my partner doesn't love me anymore it is <laughs> um, and so then I, I think that um, when men get into mass you know uh, porn and masturbation um, it's just simply a way for them to experience physical touch mm. right that they're they're addicted to the physical touch part and the same too I guess with multiple partners right it's maybe it's wanting to seek that that warmth that love from someone else um, even if it's with multiple people or yeah. well and yeah and so you know for men who choose to have sex with multiple partners like random sexual hookups type thing um 
they report to me that it's the pursuit of that person. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily the sexual act itself, that they're really pursuing that connection, that emotional connection well, with that person. They're, it's not, the reason I'm hesitating is, is they're not pursuing an emotional connection. They're pursuing a physical connection, right? But getting that person to talk mm-hmm. to them, getting that person to answer their messages, that's where the thrill is for them. It's not necessarily, they report over and over to me that the sexual act is actually anticlimactic, pun intended, Um, (laughs) that that that, because that's not really what they were after. They were after the attention. They were after the affirmation. They were after the validation that I still got it and I can still make this happen. So that that connection is the important piece there. Yes. Wow. Brad, uh, any final thoughts? Yeah, um, I just want to point out that um, we've talked about religion and sex today. And I want to point out that, it, you know, if religion is part of your life, if, if Christianity or whatever your worldview is part of your life, that we're not trying to be disrespectful to that. We're just trying to point out that, you know, believers can have good sex. Like they can enjoy sex, that that's not necessarily, I don't think it was designed to be, necessarily inherently sinful right and so we we just want people to behave within the parameters of their own boundaries within themselves and we want people to live their best life that they can awesome no thank you for that and uh also just want to thank our our listeners and uh you know say that i hope uh that this broadcast or podcast has, uh, you know, maybe brought you towards towards some healing, you know, some healing from that that guilt and shame, and um, maybe maybe kind of help you work towards wanting to improve that area of your life. Um, yeah, to begin healing your you know your mind, body, and soul. Here's just a tip. We talk a lot about guilt versus shame. Guilt being feeling bad for something that you've done or a decision you've made versus shame, taking that guilt and applying it to us personally. For example, I'm a bad friend, I'm a terrible person. While guilt can be helpful often and it may point us into a direction to make positive changes, shame is never helpful. How can you change if you are a terrible person or a bad friend? Here here are three tips to combat shame. Number one, reduce shame language and avoid I am, negative I am statements. You'd be surprised at how often we use shame terms like I am stupid or I can't do anything right. The first step in changing these behaviors is increasing your awareness of how often this is happening. Making the switch from I am bad to I did something bad can make all the difference. Number two, practice daily affirmations. I know this may sound cheesy, but being intentional about affirming yourself and getting into the practice of noticing the good things that you're doing can be really helpful with shame. Whether it's a morning routine of telling yourself that you're awesome and that you're capable, or a nightly routine of reminding yourself of all the good things that you've done in that day, it can be extremely helpful. Number three, reach out to a trusted person or help someone. Sometimes the shame can get the better of us to the point where it doesn't seem like anything can help. When these times hit, it is important to reach out to a trusted person that can accept and love you unconditionally. 
or sometimes it can be helpful to help others, for example, volunteering or helping a friend move, etc. What shame wants us to do is to isolate and stay inside of ourselves, spiraling into that pit of shame. Both of these things can help us externalize and connect with the outside world. Liking what you're hearing so far? Feel free to give us a follow at our socials down below and get some more info on sex therapy related topics.